This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Rocker Report podcast where we have a rather special episode as a consequence of not having a league game Sunderland have played to mull over. No, indeed, Sunderland have recently been taken over by Michael Dell and friends, our new billionaire owners, will hopefully give us a future that will be very largely different to the one we would have imagined to be transpiring only a few months ago. So I'm joined today in the studio by Graham. How are you doing, Graham? Yeah, my birthday. I'm good. Just seeing the girls win 9-1. Very happy. Brilliant. Good stuff. Is this your podcast debut, Craig? Or? It is my debut, indeed. Excellent. So we all, so for the second week running, we have a podcast debutant in Craig. How are you doing, Craig? I'm great, thanks. Excellent. And, and we are joined by former Sunderland player Kieran Brady once again. How are you doing, Kieran? Very well, thank you. I'll be a little bit lost without club football. Yeah, I would imagine so. It's it's literally only been seven days and already, I think, had it have not been for the rather spectacular news that we have to talk about today, there would have been nothing really of note to talk about, would there? Well, very possibly. And I'm saying that assuming, of course, that any pessimism that was evident after Peterborough has hopefully diminished. Yeah, I think there's certainly been cause for it to dissipate, at least... Well, I don't think it'll be as much of a black cloud over our heads going into the next game next week, given what we have to talk about. But anyway, enough alluding to it. Let's get right into the the meat and potatoes of it. Basically, Sunderland have been taken over by Michael Dell, or rather a consortium fronted by him. And as a result of that, yeah, we have a lot more money at our disposal. And the implications for the future are certainly worth considering for all the right reasons. But we're just going to jump straight into it. There is no three-word review or quick question this week owing to the fact that this isn't a conventional post-game reaction podcast. This is, of course, a very special edition of the Roker Report. So we're going to go straight to you, Graham, on my right. How did you feel once the takeover was put through? It's one of those things that just sounds way too good to be true, but everyone seems to think that it is how it sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, As a Sunderland fan, was the natural cynic in you thinking that this has got to be some kind of, there's got to be some kind of massive consequential string attached that's going to make this whole thing be not as good as what we initially were told it was. I think every club in the land says, oh, I just wish we were took over by like billionaires. Uh, every club wants to be like the next Man City, so to speak. And, and you kind of never see that happening. And I'm not saying we will, far from it. But when basically a billionaire fronts three or four other billionaires to buy the club and keeps on board someone who's really like, in my opinion, connected the club back to the fan base and Stuart... <laughs> 
it, it's the dream, isn't it? It's like I'm trying to find the words and stuff like that for it. But if it really is as good as it sounds and things even go moderately close to what we are hoping, <sighs> sky's the limit, isn't it? The, the sky could very well be the limit. And what you say about Stuart Donald, Graham's a, a very a very good point that in Stuart Donald, what we had was an owner and essentially a, a front man for the club from a from a financial and commercial point of view who was very much willing to reconnect the club to the fan base by any means possible. And after the advent of David Moyes and Adnan Yanazai and, and all the other mercenaries who went along Yanazai. with that, Jeez. we were obviously in a position where the vast majority of the fan base, you could argue maybe even all of them, were just completely disconnected from the club. But as a result of Stuart Donald's tenure when he took over from Ellis Short, the first port of call was to reconnect the club with the fans. But that being said, the, the, the major gripe any fans had with his takeover was that we were essentially trading a, a disinterested billionaire for a very enthusiastic millionaire, a man who was worth significantly less. But I'll throw this to you now, Kieran. Now that we still have Stuart Donald on board, and with him we now also have what seems to be a lot of money at our disposal, the kind of money that would make the likes of Mike Ashley look like a pauper, that kind of money. Now that we have that, do you think we might even be able to be as optimistic as to say that we have the best of both worlds? Well, I think that the primary benefits that have came from Stuart, ably assisted, of course, by Charlie, has been very much around fan interaction and community cohesion and the like. I don't think in a footballing context you can regard it as being an overwhelming success. I think the primary remit last season was to secure promotion. Unfortunately, that wasn't realised. That said, I think you, of course, have to factor in the transitional period and the fact that Stuart has been very candid from the outset that he does not have the personal wealth that would hope to sustain a club like Sunderland, maybe in League One, but certainly not once you were promoted to the Championship and certainly not the Premier League. So although football supporters generally, when they talk about people coming to a club, it does tend to revolve around what players, coaches or even manager. There's no doubt that the most important signing, if you like, for Sunderland over the course of the last 15 months has been this investment that we hope we'll see more and more of from what I might call, in an affectionate sense, the Dell boys. Yeah, I, I was trying to think just there of, of what sort of term we can use to refer to, to Dell and his money. <laughs> Dell boys, Dell money, any of those will do. Speaking of that, we'll go to you now, Craig. How soon do you think we will see Dell boys, Dell money? Oh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think it's not necessarily going to be the same as Man City, where they come in and say, right, gentlemen, here's 20 million for this player and 10 million for that player. And mm -hmm. I think it's going to be... Uh, and I think a much needed, slower, but much more sustainable model by which they spend and use their finance. So I think we might see a real impact in January, but I think it's 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 not going to be sensational because I don't think they're that sort of owner. I think they prefer a money ball style system that's based heavily on analytics and data. And I don't think they're necessarily the kind of romantics that would just come in and throw everything at it just for yeah. the sake of doing it. But I am excited it definitely is a move forward and super positive. Mm. And I think, you know, fans don't really have to be trapped by our limitations. We imagine all sorts, don't we, at all times. And if we're excited, I think that's brilliant. And if our dreams are running away from us, I think that's also really cool. But I'm definitely tuned in for January because if we're around about the top five, we're going to need the Dell Boys finance probably more significantly than we perhaps have in the mm -hmm. last couple of years. Got a yeah. quick question for you, though. For all of you, really. Go on, um, Graham. 
Would you play Messi behind Wyke or at either side? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I don't know if the other players were going to sign. All, it depends if you get to look in the squad, really. I mean, given how, given the squad depth we'll have. Come, You've got Mbappe coming. So, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Marcus Madison will fit in there somewhere. <laughs> Marcus Madison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like Messi would play really well off of Madison. Yeah. You know, if if we're looking too. at this from a more realistic point of view, I think to say we'll have Messi and Mbappe is ridiculous. But <laughs> Messi, and Mar- Messi and Marcus Madison... You know, now we're talking. It's possible. You know. it's all yeah, possible. yeah. M M&M. and M, M&M, yeah, yeah. See, now now we're speaking about a conceivable possibility and not just some some wild fantasizing. It's available on a free. It is apparently. That's the thing, though. Speaking about Bosman signings, is when we're looking towards, let's say, the, the soonest possible time that we can spend a lot of money, being the January transfer window. It, it is. I'll, I'll go back to you now, Graham, because what Craig says there was actually a, a very apt point. Is the owners still fancy this moneyball style of approach to to a, a, a financial transfer policy? And, and I think our our approach of perhaps looking at which players we can bring in who are young and promising, and who maybe we can turn over in the future for you know, hopefully a substantial profit. I don't think that'll change. But that being said, if you were to just to have a guess, and this is purely conjecture, none of us here have any clue as to what's in the Del Boy war chest. But what do you think we will spend in January, Grim, if, if you were just a, a guessing man? Uh, I think it depends where we are. I mean, if we're like, if that Peterborough game's like a one-off and we end up like just smashing every team and just going a good run of form like we kind of hoped we would, before any of this news came on board, I, do, I think it would be sort of maybe minute changes, like minimal changes, and they'd say, look, if, if we can get to the championship without spending like a like a big wad of cash. But you go back to last January, and I know the Will Greg thing didn't work out, but essentially we lost Madger, we brought in Will Greg, and at the time it seemed like Will Greg was like the, the one signing that we really needed to push us on. So I think they'll, they'll remember that that's the case that they did spend money on Will Grigg and it didn't work out. So I think they would be a little bit more careful. I would think, like Craig says, we'll be around the top five. I wouldn't be surprised if we spent a similar amount of money to what we did last summer, but not on just Will Grigg, maybe just like four or five million between three players that will just kind of put that icing on the cake. And maybe if like Maguire or McGeady are not mm. mass... Uh, I mean, they're, they're always on form in my opinion, but say like someone just to push them, maybe like a couple of standings here or there. I think it really is dependent on where we are because I think I think it's going to be slow and steady, isn't it? From what everyone's been told, if we're on course, looking like we're going to go up automatic, I think it could be minimal, if next to nothing. If it's going to be where we're like in the top five and we need a bit of a push, I wouldn't be surprised to see you know three, four million maybe spent. Mm-hmm. But I mean, let's dream. Let's spend. Let's spend twenty five million. Just do it. Let's yeah. fall in. Let's I, I think. In. I think just just for the sheer spectacle of it, I think you'd love to see it. But if perhaps we're keeping our sensible heads on just for the time being, I'll go to you now, Kieran. What Graham broached there was how about how league position could potentially influence our activity and our approach to the January window, and naturally, it's always going to. But given what the owners have at their disposal, how much will our league position, if significantly at all, how much will that affect what we spend? Well, I suppose that is very much predicated around how determined they are to secure promotion this season. Now, you would like to think that that would be their primary objective. You would like to think that insofar as they're compliant with financial fair play and all the rules and regulations that govern the game, that they would be prepared to finance a 
increased standard of player coming to the club. Part of the problem that exists at the moment is that not only is Sunderland a League One club in terms of its status, but they have, for the most part, I believe, League One players, even if you argue that they're amongst the better League One players. They are still League One players. Of course. So there's going to have to be wholesale changes and the culture that exists within the club is going to have to be, from my perspective, much more ruthless in a positive way. There's going to have to be a greater message sent out to not only potentially incoming players at Sunderland, but the wider footballing fraternity that Sunderland are going to be a club that is aiming to challenge consistently, meaningfully and sustainably within the highest echelons of the game in England. That's the position I come from always. And when you have billionaires prepared to come to the club and invest, particularly billionaires from overseas, then you would like to think that their plans for the club, at the very least, are medium term. Now, I can understand why Stuart Donald saw the appeal of possibly coming to a club like Sunderland and for one year, three years, maybe even more, you know, could probably make some money, as it were. And I would never decry anyone for that. But billionaires are not going to come from America just to make one or two million pounds. You know, this is loose change within their environment. But without getting ahead of ourselves, I would much rather hear not necessarily what they're going to do with the club, but how they're going to plan to achieve it. It's very cliched and it's predictable that they will mention getting the club back to where it belongs and hoping to be a top 10 club. Mm -hmm. Words are easy, you know, and the issue, and it's applicable in so many walks of life, is that they will be judged by their actions, not merely their intentions. And as things stand at this moment in time, we don't even know their intentions. What we've had is commentary from Stuart Mm -hmm. and from Charlie. And there's no doubt it is welcome because... In the modern footballing era, if you're going to be a competitive club in the higher reaches of the English game, then the likelihood is that you're going to have to have extremely wealthy people behind you. And to that end, it is, of course, very welcome. But it's going to be, for me, it's going to be increasingly difficult to do it because the wealth that exists now in the Premier League is such and the disparity between it and the Championship is such that I believe it's going to become increasingly difficult for clubs going from the Championship to the Premier League to stay in the Premier League because when you've established squads that go and buy the values that are evident in today's game are worth hundreds and hundreds of millions, Mm -hmm. then it just makes you ponder about how much an aspiring championship club is going to have to spend to at least give themselves at least a fighting Mm. chance. Aston Villa have lost every game but one. And this is despite the fact that they spent somewhere in the region of £140 million in the summer. You you have to look at teams like Fulham as well, who... Of course. I mean, it's a very basic point, almost patronising to say, but never is it more apt when, when you're faced with with the prospect we have that's spending vast amounts of money mm. to climb the leagues, it's obviously not as simple as it sounds and it won't solve all your problems. The, the fact remains that this was the feeling of Ella Short's tenure. He has slash had a lot of money. The monies he, he distributed went to went to managers who did a relatively poor job if we'd have grouped them all into the same bracket. Yeah, and one of the mistakes that Ella Short made was that he did not address underlying issues. Despite the fact that he was warned about it, behind the scenes Mm -hmm. and despite the fact that he was quite willing to spend as much money as he was a lot of what was wastage by anybody's standards but there's no doubt that he emotionally withdrew 
perhaps long before he financially withdrew, mm -hmm. but of course the emotional withdrawal did start to impact upon his personal wealth and his willing to his willingness to spend it. But if I was going to speak to the potential, you know, the, the people who are hoping to carry the club forward, if they do not address the ethos within the club, they run a greater risk of wasting just as much money as Ellis Shot. The, cl the club for decades has never been a club with a sustainable standard that has to be met. And I could reel off endless players and endless managers who I don't believe came to Sunderland as such. They simply ended up at Sunderland. And when you end up somewhere, you're not going to come with the same degree of hunger. And when well, you're mm -hmm. having to hire managers halfway or three quarters of the way through the season, when you're in an incredibly weak position in negotiation terms, you're having to say to Dick Advocat, to Paolo Di Canio, to Sam Allardyce, look, if you keep us up, we'll give you £2 million. You know, and so there's that wastage. And, and this is on top of the fact that they signed so many players and did not get a positive mm -hmm. return from them. Well, well, that's it. If, if you look, if you were to look at perhaps the, the, the transfer history of Sunderland's players and managers over, a, over the last decade, what you would see are just a sequence of different short-term plans. And mm. from that, I'm in full agreement with you, is where you, you have the issue of no ethos. And that's something that has to be addressed. I think it was it's referred to in, in, in the layman's terms as the rotten core. And it's sort of like a, that was like a weird kind of phantom that sort of plagued the club for years. And no one quite knew what they meant when they said it, but everyone knew it existed. And I think that is perhaps what we are getting that there. So... That's one piece of advice that the owners could have. If you were to give any other advice yourself, Craig, to the new owners, what would you say? Well, I think it's really important to keep Stuart and Charlie involved because uh, despite a lot of fans having various different suspicions about their hearts not being in the club or they want to flip it for a quick profit, I think the fact that they've been able to manage and sustain the club in a very tumultuous time and then attract major investment from overseas has got to be seen as a big positive. And I think... In the year that they've been at the club, I think they've seen a little bit of a Mackham transformation in themselves. I think Stuart is opening up a business in Sunderland. He's looking to open up a company here and hire people from the local area. I think he might have fallen in love with the club in the area, perhaps a little bit more than he expected as well. So mm. for me, it's a massive positive that the new American owners are willing to keep those guys on because they know the club. They've built up, as Kieran referred to, an amazing relationship with the fans, largely speaking apart from one or two unfortunate Twitter spats, but largely speaking, the communication between owner and fans has been brilliant. And I've really liked the sort of clarity mm -hmm. that Stuart has brought to the table. Mm -hmm. And I think moving forward, as Kieran referred to so eloquently, we have to have a sustainable plan. And, and I think these guys are in it for the long term. They're not here because they're lifelong Sunderland supporters and they just want to give away hundreds of millions because they're dedicated season holders. I think ultimately they're in it to make money. And the only way they can make serious money is by getting into the higher echelons of the Premier League and keeping it sustainable for as long as humanly possible. How important is the sort of continued presence of Stuart Donald for, continu for continuing to ensure that we develop an ethos? Personally speaking, I've not seen any signs of a change in ethos at the club. Certainly in terms of fan interaction, and being much more community focused. But what I witnessed last season within the League One campaign is something that I would have expected in terms of a hunger because there was so much newness about the club. You have a new chairman or owner, 
new assistant in that regard, mm-hmm. new management, new coaches, and a significant influx of new players. Despite all the change we'd experienced in recent times, that was still the newest ever Sunderland side that we turned over in a new season. D- yeah, of course. And uh, I mean, there's no doubt that so many of the departures were financially driven. I think you can offer credit for the way that they handled the situations with both Ndong and Jilibodji. That's something that I would hope would continue. But there's still a significant undertaking ahead and assessing how Sunderland's ethos is when they're operating in League One is not the best way to do it. You know, this is a club that I believe should be challenging in the top six or the top eight of English football in a very regular basis. You simply should not have a stadium such as that with both the quantity and quality of support that they have unless you want to be a competitive side within the highest reaches of the English game. And for whatever reason, and it's very difficult to be definitive, but Sunderland have been a club whose fortunes have fluctuated. And even in the 10-year spell they had in the Premier League, the second half of that was spent, for the most part, trying to avoid relegation. And even back in my my time playing, I I didn't... and I didn't know any different because I was a very young player. It wasn't a club where at the beginning of each season people told you what the standards and aspirations and ambitions were. I still believe it's a club that almost acts as if we're here at other people's sufferings, that you're almost contrite about the fact that you make so many different superstar and elite clubs come to the northeast once a season. And it has to develop an arrogance and it has to develop an ethos and culture that will attract players rather than have players come here because it's a halfway point in a career or their Mm -hmm. career's stagnating elsewhere. If you look at a lot of the players that Sunderland brought to the club, I don't think you would necessarily argue that they were inferior or incapable because they had prospered to some degree elsewhere. But when they came here, they developed an impression after several weeks, several months or whatever the case may be, that this is a club where you can not necessarily go and strike but mentally almost down tools, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that has to change and it will not change overnight. And the other thing that's important to point out, it won't change simply because the people who are operating the club from the highest level simply have a personal wealth that runs into billions of dollars or billions of pounds. You know, they're going to have to take a hands-on approach as much mm-hmm. as possible, even if it's transatlantic, because it's the players that have to sense that something is different and something has changed. Mm -hmm. And if you're not going to perform and give 100% mentally as much as 100% physically, because the former for me is much more important than the latter, and the latter only tends to follow the former, then you can expect success perhaps, but it will have a shelf life and it will largely be reduced to League One or even the Championship. It's a long road that's ahead, mm-hmm. but maybe that's what's enticing them. You know, maybe they like the idea of a challenge because for me, depending, of course, on what criteria people use, Sunderland Football Club is English football's biggest serial underachiever. And that's not an insult. That's a compliment if people are prepared to dissect what I'm saying and read between the lines. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the most important thing about being in a position to challenge and potentially be successful is to make sure that your foundations are firm and secure and that players coming to the club fully understand that this is a club that is not going to accept some of the behaviours and subculture 
that was so prominent mm-hmm. in the past. Well, that's it. And obviously, just having a billionaire owner now at, at the helm alongside the owner that you've, that you've had currently, that's not going to therefore entail that the players you bring in of a higher calibre are going to fall in line with the ethos that we all want them to have. If that was the case, then Ellershot would never have left. Mm. We would still be in the Premier League. If rich owners meant committed players... We, we wouldn't be where we are now, so it's... And apart from anything, you, you only have to look at the profound grievance that exists at a club not too far away from here with a billionaire owner. And it doesn't guarantee you any success. In fact, it doesn't even guarantee you Premier League football on an annual basis. But what it should do within the modern game is at least provide a platform. And the Dell boys if we want to refer to them as such, will never, ever, ever be as emotionally invested in Sunderland Football Club as you, Craig, Graham, or thousands of others across the city. It's completely futile for Stuart, Charlie, even me as a former player, to suggest that the level of and depth of affection for the club is comparable to the people who are born, brought up, and become part of it. But you can still contribute in the way that you can using your own skill set in whatever capacity of course. and I've got no doubt Stuart and Charlie have developed an infection for it I found that it was only by coming here playing here and living here for as long as I have that the club is much bigger than the broad wider perception that exists about it and of course the Netflix documentary has helped immeasurably mm-hmm. but I can't believe that having lived here for over 30 years I've still never seen Sunderland Football Club be a competitive club at the top end of the table. I know in 2000, 2001, they finished seventh in two occasions and it's great credit to Peter mm-hmm. Reid and the players involved. But over the period, that has been the exception. Mm-hmm. It's not been the rule. Peter Reid was, I think, responsible for, in, in the Premier League, you, you're talking two or three top half finishes? Yeah, in the last 60 years or so, Sunderland yeah. have only, I think, finished in the top 10 of the top flight and Peter Reid, of course, was responsible for two of those three. Mm-hmm. The other one being a tenth place from Steve Bruce, Steve being Bruce, the, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the the literal second place on our list of all time finishes in the Premier League. We'll we'll jump to you now, Craig. Yeah. If we are looking at what the future could entail for the Dell Boys, if, if we're still going to use the term the Dell Boys with Sunderland, I think what Kieran says there about they they will obviously never understand what emotional investment, what an emotional investment is from a Sunderland fan to Sunderland Football Club, you know, that kind of sort of understanding is only really known to the fans of that football club. Mm. And that's always been the case. But what can still be known, even to someone who's an outsider, is just a, an understanding of that, of, of like a, of a sense of compassion, a sense of, I, I suppose, empathy towards mm. the, the fans' predicament. Because if that's maintained by the owner throughout, then it would entail that should the owner remain compassionate, the ethos would always be consistent. But looking at any models of any clubs that have perhaps owners in a similar financial state, but not in the same emotional state, what kind of models, Craig, do we need to stay well away from? Uh, the crash-bang-wallop models. The crash-bang-wallop models, yeah, right? Yeah, where a billionaire comes in and they try to satisfy the desires of the fans straight away and start recklessly getting their checkbook out and and trying to sign this person and that person because they think it'll make the fans who are emotionally mm. invested happy. So are we talking maybe the antithesis of what you would call the Dortmund model? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This, I think to some degree Ellis Short tried it a little, didn't he? He came in and, and thought he could maybe perhaps buy his way mm. into the compassionate side of the club and, and, tr- and try to appreciate it from that perspective without necessarily building the foundations that 
yeah. were actually required to I take would, the club on. I would also be inclined to, whilst you can look at the whole Moneyball situation, where Moneyball has been trialled and felt, at least on one occasion, to be successful, it's in an environment where the players are almost exclusively located within the one country. The globalisation of football, being what it is, is such that there's much more scope, unfortunately, for players not being able to provide comparable records and stats if they go from one country to another. Their families might be left in their own country, they might not speak the language, and that, of course, then can adversely impact upon their output. So I would like to see Sunderland saying that they're going to build their own model because, okay, you can look at the success of Dortmund, but it may not be the case that Dortmund is in a part of Germany that would be comparable in any way to the northeast of England. I don't know enough about the... German uh, about Germany to, to to assert that. I think one thing that we have to especially consider, owing to the fact that we're all under the impression that having owners with a lot more money means that we are a lot more likely to look abroad. That when we look at the Dortmund model, now Dortmund is obviously in Germany, and Germany is situated in the centre of mainland Europe. So when you are looking abroad, you aren't looking overseas. That's the term we often use to describe looking abroad. Mm. They're not. They're looking across. Well, they're looking cross terrain, and that difference is 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 I would argue quite significant because what you're doing there is when you have sort of more neighbouring countries nearby as you tend to in Europe. If you take a player say from Switzerland, or you were to take one from Bulgaria or from Hungary, they aren't changing that much from where they are. And while I'm no expert on every country in Europe, the 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 cultural changes. You could sort of see it as you as you approach your new destination, but from where we are in England, we sort of operate, I would say, in a, in a lot more of a different way, football-wise, and perhaps even culturally, to the rest of Europe and and to the rest of the wider world. As a result, well, there's some truth to that. However, within football itself, and although, of course, I don't have any statistics to hand to support it, what I would say is that from speaking with people involved in football not just in this country, but further afield, there is a huge percentage of players globally who want to come to play in England. And of course, for a large part, that is financially driven. And I would never, ever be critical of anyone who wants to secure a future for themselves and their families. So to that end, there's advantages. Now, we often get told that the North-South divide in England can be contributory to players from the South being reluctant or disinclined from moving North. But I think with the game being as continental and globalised as it is, that North-South divide becomes completely redundant when you're trying to secure the services of a player from parts of Africa or Argentina, South America, or indeed mainland Europe. And Sunderland has got a lot to offer. It's The training ground is a critical factor in attracting someone to come why wouldn't it be that's your working environment from a Monday to Friday and in terms of technological advances it's up there with almost any other training ground but I know a lot is made about the academy and academy status ultimately an academy is just a building it's just bricks and mortar I don't believe that you should have such an impressive environment to go to your work in each day if you're not going to try and have that reflected in the staff that you're going to have. So at some point, they are going to have to look at bringing in a scouting network that goes far beyond 
the city or indeed the wider northeast. I know, of course, at the moment in the last year or two, finances have proved restrictive, but you really have to look at how other clubs go about it and, and incorporate bits from one and bits from another and then see what you can then make as the Sunderland mm-hmm. model, if you want to call it such. Um, but as, as much as a lot of fans won't appreciate me saying it, the perception that a lot of people would have of Sunderland as a football club within football would be sadly the same perception that a lot of people may have of Sunderland as a city within wider society, that it is some sort of northern wasteland that is unattractive, uninspiring and unappealing. And one of the welcome things from Stuart apparently becoming more involved in a wider societal sense is that there's a possibility of job creation. And that, for me, is great to hear in an area that's so beset by social and economic deprivation. Mm -hmm. Well, how many were made redundant back when David Moyes and Martin Bain were in charge? Well, of course, um, you know, but I'm, I'm I'm not even just talking about within the context of the club. I'm talking about the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the wider city. Promoting and, the sort of the, the identity of the city via the football yeah. club as a whole. Well, I tell you, you know, if if I heard that Mr. Dell and his associates were planning to construct some form of Dell Centre in Sunderland that was going to create 5,000 jobs, they would have me on board a lot, lot sooner than mm-hmm. they would by talking about spending X or Y amount on mm-hmm. professional footballers. Um, but they won't have to be here long to understand the realisation that the contentment of people in this city is very much contingent upon the fortunes mm-hmm. of the football club. As sad and as parochial as that might be to some, that is the reality. And I think that's quite commonplace mm-hmm. in areas where... A football club is the focal point of the community and that very same community does suffer Mm -hmm. through being isolated and marginalised by the powers that Mm be. So, Speaking of the community appearing to be downtrodden, let's um uh, brief let, well let's well I say briefly let's visit in in some in you know in, in some substantial detail the Netflix documentary because that will of course be in, I, I would imagine a massive contributing factor in the Dell boys coming to invest in Sunderland what you have with the documentary is a very romantic sort mm. of a very like romantic perception of just how the the city and community of Sunderland is suffering through through the through its heart through its football club that, that, that's mm. essentially the, the, the picture painted by the documentary. So I'll throw that one to you, Craig. Just how significant was the documentary Sunderland Till I Die in securing this takeover from well, your point of view? From from my point of view, it would have been important. I don't know whether it was yeah. the definite mm-hmm. sort of final nail in the coffin that we're, we've got to sign these guys because this documentary was so moving. Yeah, we've watched one episode yeah, on Netflix. Right. Let's, let, let's buy the football club. It, it, it wouldn't have been as on a whim. Uh, we need to hire that taxi driver from Monkwee Mouth. <laughs> we need to get him in. Yeah. Uh, but it's given us a presence. Uh, I think it's given us a, a, an international presence that not many clubs do. Uh, mm. Man City, obviously, being the exception, they had a brilliant documentary made about them. And big clubs like Barcelona and Dortmund quite often have documentaries made about them, but but mm. relatively small northeastern clubs mm-hmm. in, in the sort of marginalised parts of northern England. It's very, very unusual, but it, it sort of ties in with a lot of 
things that are happening in the world at the moment where people mm. feel marginalized socially, politically, they feel a little bit lost and cut off from the system. And I think the documentary was perfectly timed to sort of intertwine with that. So people got a real appreciation of what genuine hardworking people go through on a day to day mm. basis to get through at the end of the day. And in our case, from a sporting perspective, Sunderland as a football club plays a huge part in that because for a lot of people, the club, not quite everything it's probably a little bit too much of an exaggeration to say that but it's pretty close to being mm. everything for some and i think the netflix documentary was brilliant at showing that it definitely was romantic mm. uh, but i kind of liked that and i think the fact that it you had uh fullwell 73 the production company behind it heavily involved in lots of different hollywood productions including James Corden's The Late Late Show, and he himself advertised the Netflix documentary to a massive audience, to his 6 million tw uh, uh, Twitter followers. I think definitely that presence, that focus, that marketing drive behind the whole documentary would have been a motivating factor for any transatlantic investor. Might not have been the crucial yeah. uh, sort mm -hmm. of point that manipulated them into it, but it certainly would have helped it. Yeah, yeah I think if, question. if it, it's... The documentary was as romantic for me as it was informative of Sunderland's plight. It it did the job of both. It look if, if I'm if I'm a billionaire owner who wants to invest in a football club and I want to know where to look, it's one thing to do your research, but you can th that research can be sort of fortified by watching the documentary and just seeing for yourself from albeit a third person point of view, but seeing it for yourself just what state Sunderland is in. What sets the documentary apart from so many of the examples we gave there of Man City, of Barcelona, is that, typically speaking, the best-selling the best selling sort of cinematic productions on football are those of success stories. I mean, yes, they may initially begin in a rough patch, but ultimately they end with the club being successful. You know, it, it's, it's the common convention of any storytelling. It starts off bad mm. and there's a problem, but in the end it's a happy ending. Now, if you're a billionaire owner, you're not going to want to look. You're going to you're not going to want to watch a, doc, a documentary on Man City. You know, going from their eight-one loss to Borough to winning the league in a few seasons. You're not going to want to watch that if if you're looking for somewhere to invest because ultimately, you know, it's going to take a lot of money to convince Cheek Mansoor to give up that club. It's it's you know, it's an absolute goldmine for him. The difference by watching the the, the um watching Sunderland till I die. It's it's the closest football's getting to a Greek tragedy. It's absolutely, you know, it's it, it it it's a painful watch. I can't watch it back now. I watched it through once and I loved it. I tried to rewatch it the other day and I couldn't get past the the build up to the five 0 loss to Celtic. It's painful to watch. But what that shows any owner is that you've got an absolute juggernaut of a club there on its knees. I mean, it's it's better than where it was at the time of that of that documentary ending. But ultimately, it's still massively, massively underachieving. And as mm. as as Kieran says, and I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. It it probably is, you know, historically the most underachieving club in English football. As well as that, though, Alex, I think the documentary showed from a business point of view, from an investor point of view, you have a constant, constant customer base. Mm -hmm. You can bash them on the head. You can keep them. You can hold them down. You can disappoint. You can disappoint them. You could relegate their favorite team. You could make them cry. You could have families fall out over certain results, and, mm -hmm. and yet they come. Yeah, every mm. single season, You're still season getting a minimum in, of twenty. Season K. out, they will come, and that's one of the most amazingly beautiful things about Sunderland fans and their commitment. They will come, and from an investor point of view, to have that constant customer base that's going to be always steady, but with some steady investment, might actually skyrocket. I think that would be very tempting. Yeah, you, it. 
it presented the facts clear as day. Sunderland lost this many games. That you know, there was nothing exaggerated there. When we lost five 0 to Celtic, it was as bad as the cameras made it out to be. But at the same time, it was portrayed in a light that showed you just how much the fans were suffering. And if there was a moral to be gained at the end of the documentary, it's that running running a football club as an enterprise, there is a ghost in the machine, and that ghost is the fans. That there is an entity there that is different to just let's say running a company that does office supplies. Look, if that goes under and you can't make enough pencils and rubbers anymore, then at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to have families going home that night and, you know, mm. upset, crying to each other, becoming disillusioned over the loss of, of a company like Ryman. The difference is, though, if, if Sunderland is a company suffering the same fate financially and, and in terms of success, then the fans are going to revolt. The fans are going to suffer. There are going to be There is going to be an, an entity, a collective of people, who are suffering as a, as a consequence of it. And if we're talking about how this is going to contribute to the owner's understanding of the ethos, if there's one thing that anyone... If you if you would ask one person to take a message away from the documentary, it's that what happens when an owner loses interest in a football club? What happens is it suffers a slow and very painful death, quite frankly. Watching the club go from relegation to the to the championship to then to League One, that's all you would say as a result of Ella Short's despondency. Well, I would share the culpability a lot more because a lot is overstated about how off-field financial events can have an impact on players, managers, coaches, etc. As much as Ella Short had undoubtedly withdrawn both in a financial and emotional context, the players at the club have to take a lot of responsibility. There's no way whatsoever that the squad that Sunderland had at their disposal, beginning, of course, with Simon Grace and subsequently with Chris Coleman, was amongst the bottom three squads in the championship that mm-hmm. season. But what you had then is players who had, I believe in the main, adopted the attitude that I don't care. you know, And, and that will then start to be evident in terms of performance and consistency. There might have been one or two bright spots, you know, the comeback at Bristol City, the away victory at Derby County. But in the main, that was a fragile, mentally weak squad that stemmed from the fact that a lot of players were getting probably paid a lot of money, albeit they'd been relegated from the Premier League. Um, and, And there's a lot of things like that that have to change. There's a lot of things that have happened with Sunderland footballers on an individual basis that you just would not expect expect to see happen at Liverpool, at Man United, at Man City. And part of it, and it's ironic in a way that I'm actually acknowledging this publicly, is that many players are the beneficiary of the fans' adoration without actually having done anything of note. Mm-hmm. And it is ironic me saying that because the fans were exceptionally generous to me and still are despite the fact that I've retired when I was 21 and wouldn't dare to try and label myself as some sort of favourite of all time, whatever the case may be. But ultimately, Kieran, and you'll know this better than anybody, well, I say anybody in this room, there were three of us in this room, and, <laughs> and um, and I, I mean, I don't I don't know you that well, Craig, but you've not played professional football, no? No, certainly not to Kieran's level, yeah. Okay, well, neither have I. Just a step behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I played fives when I was 17, but, you know, beyond that, I've not really played anything full-time. But anyway, I digress. You'll know better than anyone, Kieran. What do the fans appreciate? You know, as you said, that you, you, your time at the club was was a lot was a lot shorter lived than you'd have hoped it to have been. Hmm. And obviously, from your point of view, you'll regret not having more time to have 
you know done what what you what you love doing. But what did the fans appreciate when you did play? Well, first and foremost, yes, of course, you can feel a sense of grievance that you were only able to play professionally for five years. But I feel very fortunate as a human being mm-hmm. that I found this area and of such an affection and affinity for it. The, with regards to the question you're asking, I don't think the Sunderland fans are that different from the majority of fans mm-hmm. of other clubs in that regard. If they see somebody that's creative, somebody that can dribble adeptly, mm-hmm. then it seems to be the nature of football mm-hmm. that they are warmly received and appreciated, often adored by mm-hmm. supporters. Equally, however, fans do tend to admire players where their ability seems to be limited but they more than compensate for that by ensuring that they have the mm-hmm. right attitude and are prepared to do as much mm-hmm. as they can um, on a weekly basis. So I just consider myself very, very mm-hmm. fortunate that the relationship I had with the supporters is something that a lot of footballers who have a 15 to 20 year playing career are not fortunate enough to be the recipient of. So to that end... You know that was that was a significant factor in me deciding to to stay here, and it's it's strange in a way because a lot of people talk about the northeast as if it is some sort of desolate wasteland, mm-hmm. and yet I'm surrounded by people on a regular basis. You know, like Dean Gordon who played at Middlesbrough, but who's originally from down south. Gary Bennett, of course, former captain and club legend. Julio, you know, for a long time, all players that were born out with the northeast of England, but who came here as a result of their career and developed such an affection for the area that they set up home here. And it is unfortunate in a sense that there is a broad, unfavourable perception. But when you come here and you experience the warmth, the generosity, the humour of the people, I mean, bear in mind, I'm, I grew up in Coke Bridge and then the east end of Glasgow. And Sunderland, in many ways, is a home from home. You know, the, 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 the so, so much of the daily cultural mores are very, very similar mm-hmm. to what I was familiar with. And um, you, you as the supporters would probably know more than me about the number of players who have came to the club, waxed lyrical about it, equally about the area. But there's, there's something worrying when you have some footballers, for example, who have came to Sunderland, experienced adversity, but then actually says that they loved their time there mm-hmm. because you kind of think, well, as a footballer, how can you honestly say you loved your time there? Because you were battling against relegation. You endured dropping down to a division lower. Yeah. And these are the, th- I mean, look, people talk about the club and the, the, the giant killing act that some would refer to it as in terms of beating Leeds in the 1973 FA Cup final. I believe Sunderland will be in a good place as a football club if Sunderland are involved in another giant killing act, but they're on the losing side. Because that will tell you where the club is in terms of its broader status, if it could play in a game and be regarded as a giant killing victim. You know, because that that's where the club should be. Mm-hmm. You know, It's it, that perspective. It, yeah, it, it, it is. And this is, this is why the the people who are, are hopefully going to invest significantly in the club have got such a huge undertaking and they will never find this out definitively unless they speak with players 
they will not get it from Stuart. They will not get it from Charlie mm -hmm. because footballers tend to be very, very good at secreting a lot of relevant information. You know, it's just part of football and culture. And it's something that I tried to get Ellis Short and Margaret Byrne to do, but sadly they were disinterested in it. Initially they were warm to the idea, but then they avoided relegation and perhaps thought, well, we don't need to pursue this initiative now. But we know how it turned out. Mm -hmm. Precisely. I think if there's one th one more point, I suppose, we can discuss before we bring this podcast to a close, it's what you say there about the players that we bring to the club, Kieran, about how a lot of them have endured a lot of hardship at Sunderland and yet we still have a lot of players who hold Sunderland it's still in very high regard and are still very are, are either still in and around the area. They feel like a certain kinship with Sunderland as a result. And I think what what that what that hinges on is a certain type of character that I think the club attracts maybe once in a blue moon, maybe you get a few a season, depending on how our look generally goes in the transfer windows. But normally who was it? It could have been Alex Ray when we had him on the podcast. It was it was someone from that particular era who said that playing in the Northeast was the hardest place to play in if you were losing. And it was one of the best places to play in if you were winning. I mean I say Northeast, I meant sorry, I meant Sunderland. Playing in Sunderland was if, if you were if you were on the losing team, it was it was brutal to have those fans breathing down your neck but if you were winning there was no place better I think what that what that would imply is that the type of character we need at Sunderland is the type of character who can go for the hell or high water high risk high regard of satisfying the fans needs and perhaps being aware of the anger they can have at a poor result I think there's a, there's a certain type of caliber of player and perhaps even just of person that we really need is that something that the owners should be aware of do you think going into the transfer windows Craig Definitely, definitely. I mean, referring quickly back to the money ball system, it's it's it doesn't guarantee everything. It mm. can give you an awful lot of tremendous statistical analytical data, but as Kieran, as a former professional, would know only too well, you, you you really still do need that guy with the eye, that guy with mm. the heart who can connect with somebody. And I think moving forward, we need a combination of both. We need a real team and a definitive infrastructure, and as Kieran referred to a definite ethos that we can build a foundation from. But we also need people of heart, people who can mm -hmm. still spot talent and use all of the statistical data uh, in positive ways, but use their general knowledge and affection for football mm -hmm. to combine it to get the right character in. You need, for me, at Sunderland, people who, the, the people who found the most success are the people who have become more synonymous with the supporters themselves, people who share the same kind of of characteristics, people who perhaps have suffered through adversity, people who have perhaps been dis disconnected before and seen this as a wonderful opportunity to do something. So you're really looking for me to build forward for Sunderland people of genuine heart and character, people who have the strength mm -hmm. to play at Sunderland through the bad times and the good. And sometimes we, we haven't had that. As Keen refers to, we've had mentally weak players who haven't been able to sustain any kind of ethos at any point and being only too happy to drop off the map. And so we need mm. players who have a reputation throughout football of, of having full integrity yeah, and real I, honesty and real depth of personality and character and not just being, I don't know, have the best pass, passing ratio statistics in League 2 or League 1 or whatever. The, the mm. character behind the statistics is every bit as important as what they produce Absolutely. on the football field. See, the thing, you, you know, with, with things like, I have got the greatest admiration for the Moneyball approach and I enjoyed the film and it was interesting to see how it can be used in a positive manner. But 
like any strategy, and of course that I believe is all it is. What happens Absolutely. if everybody tries to use a money ball approach? Somebody will still finish third bottom, second bottom, and Absolutely. bottom of the league. A Gordon Strachan made the point a number of years ago when people were speaking about the wonderfully positive attitude of health from the Italian clubs. And he made the point, and it's very true, he says, the players that play for the teams that have finished third bottom, second bottom and bottom of Serie A all eat pasta and they all drink spring mm -hmm. or Evian water mm -hmm. and they all go to bed at a reasonable hour. And the point he was trying to get across was that fundamentally the most important thing you can have at your disposal is good footballers. Mm -hmm. Good defenders, good midfielders, good attackers, good goal yeah. scorers, a good goalkeeper. So There are very creative and eloquent ways of dancing around that, but ultimately the best teams, if, if, there's, if one thing has to separate them, it's quality and it always will be and it always has been and that's yeah. never going to change. Absolutely. And I think it's wise and it's responsible of a manager or indeed a club in a wider sense to always try to look at ways that you can compensate in areas where you might be weaker or inferior to others, whether that's over the course of 90 minutes or over a season. But Sunderland have got a wonderful starting point. They already have the stadium that is comparable with any others, I believe. OK, it might be a little bit smaller than some others. They have both the support in terms of its passion and its willingness to turn up. So that has to then be wedded to other ingredients in a consistent meaningful sustainable manner because i looked pre i looked some time ago around standalone football stadiums in europe and the stadium i like is perhaps the biggest that has never actually witnessed european club football now that for me is a damning indictment mm -hmm. on the custodians of the club over recent years and, of course, the ambitions and aspirations that stem from them. The club really needs a Roy Keane, not as a manager, but at the top end of the club, who would come in even with mm -hmm. a naivety and say, well, I expect a stadium like this, mm -hmm. I expect a support like this, to be potentially witnessing Juventus or Real Madrid or Barcelona, maybe not every single season, but at least once in a while. And that, you know, I know when they finished seventh, you could argue they were unlucky that European football wasn't accessible by dint of that alone. What you say there is very, very interesting because, I mean, I, while I, I don't have the figures in front of me to verify it, it could well be the case that our stadium in Europe is probably one of the biggest standalone stadiums to not witness European club football. I, I mean, it, it certainly is. There's, there's others maybe around about the 50,000 mark. Um, so if there's a stadium being constructed in recent years that... Mm -hmm nullifies what I'm saying then I accept that I think that, well I mean but I the point think. broadly speaking yeah. remains what you say there about Roy Keane as well or at least not Roy Keane but the image of Roy Keane the demeanour of Roy Keane's required what you have with someone like Roy Keane is someone who was happy to sort of take the long and the low the, the rock and the hard place with the fans was that someone, like, if you had a Roy Keane type character whether that be a player a manager whoever if, if you have one if you have a few that's the type of person who can stare down 40,000 furious Sunderland fans off the back of a 3-0 loss and just take it on the chin. Mm. Then go out next week and then get the result they want. Yeah, That's what you need. What we have had too much in recent times is players, as managers, who they see one bad result, they're given one bad situation and you just see them crumble 
obviously I'm not going to say any, I, I don't need to say any names. I can think of a few that rhyme with like Mavid Doys or Jadnan Anazai. I can think of, <laughs> I can think of examples, but we don't need to name names anymore because they're figures of the past. But ultimately it's that calibre that I think we do just need. The new investors could do a lot worse than speaking with Ellis Short, trying to get a candid response from him mm-hmm. about where he thinks things went wrong or things went awry and well, when it did. But he abs- they, they absolutely have to, I believe, create some sort of structured approach that will be in confidence in terms of what's discussed between the new owners and players that were formerly in the employ of the club that played at major English clubs or major European clubs. Because all, if they're at the end of their career, they're not going to be judged on what they say. They can speak in confidence, but it will be as part of a Sunderland Football Club initiative. Then players like Andy Cole or Dwight York or Steve Bold or numerous others from the last two decades or so might be prepared to say... I couldn't believe what I witnessed at Sunderland because at Arsenal, that simply wouldn't be allowed to happen. Or at Manchester United, mm-hmm. we took for granted that this was always the case and yet at Sunderland, it's never even spoken about. And then you can construct an ethos that will in time become much, much more impressionable with regards to the players that are coming in. And what in time it might do is it might restrict the pool of players that you're going to secure the services of, but it will be the right pool of players, the ones that come with a mentality that you don't have to motivate. They just come with the right mentality. And it makes a manager's job easier when then they can focus simply on strategy, formation, tactics, etc., and because they know the players they're working with don't really need to be told, you better be at it today. You know, if you think back to Alex Ferguson, Josie Mourinho, players that manage clubs that have been successful over the course of the last two to three decades, how often did you ever hear one of them saying in the aftermath of a match, the players gave 110% today? Sunderland has to be a club where players do not get any praise Mm-hmm. because they gave their all. It's an, it's an expectation, it's, not a compliment. You should be able to take it for granted. And that is something that should be up at the Academy of Light when players walk into the Academy for the very first time. We will never praise you for giving you 100%. And the overriding message that has came, perhaps from managers, and to be fair, from supporters at times, is we don't really care as long as you give 100%. Well, you have to start caring. Mm-hmm. Because that blasé attitude of sorts does start to reverberate into the minds of the players and players can be very very good at deluding people that they are giving their all you know so for example you could have somebody that um you know they, they, they might go out onto the field of play and give 100% but it might be 100% in that moment but it's not their 100% it's their 100% at the time but they're not living right they're not training right you know, and I was guilty of that myself as a young player. And all of those things have to change and it has to be sustainable and it has to be with mm-hmm. conviction. And then you might start to reap the benefits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it becomes much more of the default position of Sunderland Football Club. It inherits a reputation internally within the game and amongst players that that is a place you want to go. It's a place that, you know, it's a football club that is genuinely aspirational um, rather than 
I hate to say, you know, always the bridesmaid. It's not even the bridesmaid, you know. It's it's not, you know, and... It's always the wreath that you didn't buy when you bought the other one instead. Well, I don't want to go as morbid as (laughs) as that, Alex, but you get the point. You know, you you do. I Um, thought um, Kieran was going to make a pitch for Roy Keane as... Uh, chief scout or in, in charge of the uh, transfer policy there for a moment a director of football that would be awesome I, right? I, well, I, incidentally I think a scout network if, if I had the, the power to just get them to do one thing first and foremost it would be to start building a scouting network that revolves around the kind of transfer approach that we've spoke about for the past hour the thing is some players have came to the club who you would regard through seeing them in the earlier part of their career as being quite mentally resolute but once they've came here, and at times they might look around the dressing room and see that other players are quite blasé about their whole experience, then it can have the possibility of demotivating them. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are exceptions. Players who have been exceptional for the club. You know, Kevin Kevin Ball would get referred to a lot. And I know people would say that Kevin would run through a brick wall for the club. Kevin would run through a brick wall for voluntarily you know that and it's, it's a little bit maybe it's a little bit insulting to suggest that he would do it for one club and one club only what i would say however is his deepest affection now is for sunderland and this part of the world there's no doubt about it um and, and then there's other players that came whose attitude was outstanding like defoe was a great example of oh, a, was a, a footballer yeah. in the twilight of his career but who lived right and very you know you could say selfishly motivated, mm-hmm. but singularly focused, mm-hmm. ate right, drinks right, lives right, etc. Well, that, that sheer discipline is why the man's 38 and still playing. Exactly, well. exactly. But the, but there's no doubt that, sadly, for every Defoe or every Kevin Ball, and they're, mm-hmm. they're contrasting characters, there's different ways to be focused and disciplined mm-hmm. and to give your all. But for every one of them, you know, a, a lot of supporters would be able to reel off seven or eight relatively big name players Mm -hmm. who came to the club and for one reason or another it simply did not work well that's it if you were to line them all up in like chronological order of when they were signed you'd probably go if you were to say good is a player who had the right mentality and was a good footballer and bad is a player who lacks any of that requirement that I've mentioned there you'd probably have good bad 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 good (laughs) bad 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 good yeah or certainly in terms of their output I mean, I remember when I, when I came down to Sunderland when I was 16 years old, and I think I said this, or I've certainly said it in public previously, a former Sunderland player who had left the club by that stage but who lived in Scotland, when I asked what Sunderland was like as a club, he told me it's a holiday camp, right? Now, he wasn't being complimentary. He was basically saying it's a club where it's easy to be a footballer and Sunderland should not be a club where the most instinctive response that you can give is it's easy. If people ask me what it was like to play for Sunderland and I'm only restricted to using one word, I would probably say it was easy. Now, that's not a reflection on whatever ability I had. It's just that there was no demands placed upon you in any meaningful sense. But when I did come down to the club, (laughs) because it was in quite recent history, a lot of people spoke about Claudio Marangoni this Argentinian player who was signed in the aftermath of the 1978 World Cup, he came to Sunderland, didn't work out for him. To all intents and purposes, it may look like a bad signing, but when he returned to Argentina, he was South American Footballer of the Year. (laughs) So you kind of think, well, 
was it was was things like this happening as far back as the seventies? Yeah. It's nice that some things don't change. Uh, well, <laughs> um, hopefully they will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a revolution has to take place, though, right? To stop yeah, that yeah. from happening, and if that's new ownership, new investors, uh, a new ethos, a new transfer foundation that's different mm-hmm. to what we've ever had before. And it's got to be a good thing. All Absolutely. of this needs to tie in together, though, right, yeah. Kieran? It needs to all kind of happen. It does. And, I mean, I know there was references several years ago within media that Sunderland Football Club were contemplating the possibility of having a training ground in London whereby the players would train Monday to Friday in London and obviously stay there yeah. and then, of course, travel north fortnightly for mm-hmm. a home game. And I recall thinking, you know, first of all, the people at the council... Mm-hmm. would have been incandescent oh. at the perception of Sunderland as being a place that certain employees from certain companies cannot live Monday to Friday. I mean, footballers, they'll be staying in Cleden, not Chechnya. Yeah. You know? Well, so, you, you know, and I mean, it's a fantastic place to come and stay And Okay, it might be easier for me to say that coming from a very working class background. But... Um, they, they have to work on, you know, marketing... Not just reality, perception. Mm. Perception's everything. Footballers don't have a special Google account that they can go on and look at if they hear Sunderland or any clubs interested. I don't know what someone in Germany will see if they put Sunderland or Sunderland AFC into Google. But trust me when I say that it's important. And one of the things that they should do, and I imagine they do, is that if Sunderland are interested in whether it's a new investor, a new owner, a new manager, new coach, new player, get them here. Do whatever you can to get them here because that stadium Mm -hmm. is impressive. The training ground is impressive. And if they can stay here for a couple of days and meet with the people who may already be aware of them, they won't help but to be impressed by the welcome that awaits them. You know, and this is in addition to them doing their own their own research. I came down in mid-July for the very first time. In my 16-year-old naivety, I didn't know that Sunderland was on the coast. It just so happened that it was in the middle of a heat wave. And we drove two and a half hours from Glasgow. And when I get out of the car, I had to check myself, thinking, have I just been in a car for two and a half hours or on a plane? Because Seaburn and Roker Beach were absolutely packed. You know, and I'm thinking, I I wonder if it's like this (laughs) all the time. And then I rebuffed the advances of Chelsea and came to Sunderland and the career might have only been five years but I don't regret it for one single moment because first and foremost you're a human being Mm -hmm. and your contentment comes from within it can be contributed to by Mm -hmm. external factors but I love it here love the people um, and will be here hopefully many years. Well I would say you're a very good example of the fact that Sunderland as a city and a football club and as everything else, an area, a culture, an identity needs to be appreciated and that needs to be in the minds of the owners. They need to see for themselves that Sunderland, the feeling of Ella Short is that you aren't running an enterprise and you aren't running a business. Mm. What you are running is at the heartland of an entire region, of an entire of an entire people. Mm. If, you, if, you, if you're going to really push the board out with the dramatics, you, you know, culturally it is so, so crucial and should it be mismanaged or should it not be managed with the proper care it deserves, it's going to be, it, it, the, the consequences, as, as we've seen, are severe. You, you, get the, 
you get the, the 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 horrendous pandering which I hated at the time of having a training ground in London, thinking that the the, the team that the city itself wasn't even worthy of having its own team train there. It's oh. almost it's almost like it's being gentrified. It's ridiculous. It's it it shows how much it's like when you said that being at Sunderland was like an easy holiday camp, or that it was just easy. That shows just how much before we've pandered to the mentality that because we're not the capital city or a major city in the UK, we are therefore inferior and must mm. do something to compensate for that. No, we have to have the belief that because we're Sunderland, we need to maintain that identity and push it forward and yeah. make it something to rally around rather than something to avoid. I think Napoli might be comparable in that regard. The south of Italy is seen as the poorer relation mm-hmm. and they are the ones that fly the flag for that particular part of Italy and the battles that they have with Juventus and the Milan giants. But, you know, comparisons, analogies will always fail at some point. Yeah. And it's really up to Sunderland and hopefully it will be through these Mm -hmm. new investors to create an identity that Mm -hmm. is comfortable with, with, you know, with, with, with the people, you know, I hate using the term customers with regards to football fans. Um, you know, there's a huge difference. I signed a contract. Well, that kind of language that was the failing of, of Ellis Shot again. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I know to a degree they are. And I know within League One that the percentage in terms of income that comes from supporters is hugely different. It almost flips in its head with regards to what you have in the Premier League. But, you know, I signed a contract with Sunderland Football Club when I was 16 years old and it was financially driven. And it expired at different points in the near future. Both of you, as well as hopefully thousands of people who are listening, entered into an emotional contract with Sunderland when you were four years old, five years old, Mm, seven years old. It's a contract for life. You're not financially rewarded. It's all about your emotional well-being. And of course, there's going to be fluctuating fortunes that dictate that one weekend you'll feel quite high and the other, the following, it might be quite low. But, that's where there's a moral responsibility on investors at a football club to always be conscious of the fact that the financial contributions that are coming in doesn't automatically mean that the people can be deemed as exclusively customers. You know, there's something much more profundly emotional mm-hmm. about it. And the Netflix documentary, I believe, did demonstrate Definitely. that in a good way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it there for today. I think if we were to boil the entire discussion down to perhaps one crucial point is that while the money is there, and the money is, of course, a very exciting prospect to see what they can do with it, the intention is what I'm praying for and the the responsibility. We need them to have the right intake of responsibility. We need to have the right intentions. And myself with every other Sunderland fan and everyone who has you know a, a shared emotional bond with the club is... We'll, we'll be praying for the same because we know the consequences of when you don't get that despite having that much money at your disposal. But anyway, I think we're good to leave it there. So thank you very much, Craig, for your debut. Thanks very much, Alex. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, you're very welcome, mate. You're very welcome. And thank you, Kieran, once again for... Thank you for very much in. for asking me to come. Yeah, you're very welcome. You're welcome back anytime. As are you, Craig, of course. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Okie doke. Well, here's to what is hopefully a bright and prosperous long lived future with the Dell Boys. Thank you very much and good night. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.